0: Welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the yearningly young, heartily hip, and loftily lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis.
1: Hello. Hello. How are you guys doing? I'm great. I'm Pretty good. really psyched about the wine we're drinking right now.
0: Yeah, where is it from?
1: So, we are drinking a, a Riesling, and I'm not normally a white wine kind of guy, which I know is Olga's favorite, but uh, we're drinking it's called Inigo. And you might be thinking, isn't that Spanish for Ignatius? Ignatius, like the founder of the Jesuits. You're I was
0: correct. thinking Princess Bride, but sure.
1: Um, also an Inigo. However, it is a reference to St. Ignatius, not... uh,
0: Inigo Montoya.
1: Not Inigo Montoya. (laughs) Um, We're drinking Inigo, uh, which is a Riesling from uh, Seven Hill winery which is a south australian wine um and so this was gifted to us by our hosts in australia and when this we were is there. the
0: only jesuit run winery yeah in the this, world, is, right? this is a
1: jesuit run winery which i can think a few things that would have been more on brand
0: honestly unfortunately we didn't get to go while we were in australia but our hosts were super kind and uh got us some bottles to go so yeah. so, so cheers cheers, cheers to guys. inigo
1: and his <laughs> companions
2: so good All right. Who are we talking to this week, Olga? (laughs) This week, we're talking with Dawn Arujo-Hawkins. She is a religion reporter at National Catholic Reporters Global Sisters Report. And this publication focuses on telling the stories of Catholic sisters around the world and the communities that they serve. Yeah, I was
0: really excited to talk to her. I think it's really cool that uh, NCR has invested so much in covering um, sisters around the world. Sisters are doing such important work, um, and Dawn does a great job of bringing those to the surface.
2: And Dawn's doing really great work. She's written about sisters who are doing anti-racism work in uh, states across the country. Um, She's talked about anti-racism efforts in Ferguson. And she also talks a lot about black spirituality and black sisters, which, you know, I'm someone who's plugged into this world. And even I still was learning a bunch of new things from Dawn.
1: Yeah. And we can definitely all learn more. And so an important conversation coming up with Dawn Rujo Hawkins.
0: But first, signs of the times—the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week, so you don't have to. First, on Sunday, the Vatican wrapped up a historic four-day summit uh, on the sexual abuse of minors. Uh, it was
1: a. It was a pretty. Jam-packed weekend, yeah? So Yeah,
0: no. So it started on Thursday. It was over 190 church leaders, so bishops from around the world, um, heads of religious orders, all gathered at the Vatican for a jam-packed uh, four days of uh, listening sessions. Um, they had survivors talking. They had experts in the field talking. And it was met with mixed reactions, I would say, at the end.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's because... There were so many people watching the Vatican this weekend, and I think they were watching for... Concrete policy actions um, that were going to come out of this or changes that were going to be proposed. Um, and that's not necessarily what went down.
0: Yeah. So the Vatican tried to set expectations going into this that you know people should not expect some a document to come out of this. This was more of a a time for bishops across the globe to get on the same page when it comes to sex abuse. This is something that in the United States we've been dealing with with for decades, but that's not the case um, in, in countries in Africa and Asia. So they the Vatican saw this as an opportunity um, to educate bishops about why they need to be concerned about this.
1: Right. It's not just an American problem or an Australian problem or a Latin American problem. It is a global problem in the church.
2: Right. And that's something that came out at the summit. We had a sister from Nigeria who spoke to bishops on Saturday, and she talked about how Sexual abuse has been something that she's been hearing about since the 1990s, um, and this is something that has been exploding not just in Africa but also in Asia. You know, and I think for a lot for myself, I know, and a lot of Catholics in the U.S. we think about this very much as a U.S. thing. But the sister made clear, no, this is happening everywhere. And yeah. I think
1: that was one of the themes of the summit was the impact that a lot of women made on it. Be, uh, you know, they're obviously not any of the bishops, but a lot of the speeches they made um, really. You know, they were reading the bishops the Riot Act in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, no this this Nigerian sister, sister Veronica Open Nebo, uh, she like kind of let loose on the bishops. She she said she called them hypocrites. She said mm-hmm. they were mediocre or they had been mediocre in their response to the sexual abuse crisis. Um, and I think that's it's probably a new experience for a lot of bishops to be told that to their face.
1: Yeah, but I think it it, it it was super important to have those voices present at the and I'm glad they they were given the platform. They were now. I guess what what did. We all think about it. So Pope Francis finished this weekend with a talk of his own, right, Ashley?
0: Yeah. So he he gave a 30-minute talk after a closing mass on Sunday um, in which he talked about the sexual abuse crisis as a global crisis, not just for the church, but for society at large. It's It's something that happens in families and in other institutions. And he really emphasized that fact, which I think sat not so well with some people, even though it is true, I think— I don't know. Olga, you've said you kind of wanted something a little more pointed from the Pope.
2: Yeah, I definitely did. I, I really appreciated that the bishops gathered in this way. We, we're seeing so many institutions around the world dealing with their own uh, sexual abuse crisis. And this is the first time that we see leaders of an institution come together in this way. But I think... I wanted his language to be stronger. I thought that it was very disappointing to hear him say, well, you know, this happens elsewhere or most abuse happens in the family. Like, obviously, those are those are facts, but we wanted for you to be a lot stronger. You already, you know, this meeting was pushed. Bishops were meeting in the fall and they were encouraged to wait until the summit. And then The to, U.S. You know, bishops were meeting US in bishops. the fall. Yes, right. correct. Um, and then to have this summit happen and then this to be the language that Pope Francis used, I was just really disappointed by it.
1: Yeah, and I, to... What you alluded to, Olga, it is a big deal that the bishops were brought together on a global scale like this. and, yeah, and we can't
0: really—nothing ima- like this happened 20 years ago when when the sex abuse crisis first broke out in the United States. For, for this to happen at the highest level in the church, I just can't imagine that happening under Pope John Paul II.
1: Yeah, and so historically, like, you know, 20 years for—it it is a short time in the church, but we don't all live in— the time of the church and victims don't certainly live in the time of the church and so i think that's there's a reason why there's still a lot of frustration i was especially i thought this was kind of an own goal on the vatican's part because they had so many journalists i mean they had people mentioning that there were more journalists in rome for this meeting than the most that there had been since the conclave when Pope Francis was selected. So this was a major media event. And while the Vatican tried to tamper expectations about what would come out of this meeting, I don't know that they communicated that effectively.
0: Yeah, I guess I guess I'm reserving judgment. I think one of the takeaways from the meeting was that the bishops were supposed to take what they learned here um, back to their home countries, their own diocese, um, and implement policies uh, to protect children and hold bishops accountable. So I think it might be a little bit too early to tell whether, whether that's effective. Pope Francis did call for concrete measures, but he wants it to kind of happen in a ground-up way. So we'll have to wait and see about that. What's our next story, Zach?
1: So this week, Cardinal George Pell, who is one of Pope Francis's top advisors, was uh, the news was released that he was found guilty of abusing 213 13-year-old boys um, in, when he was Archbishop of Melbourne.
0: So this conviction actually came down in December, but the judge in the trial placed a gag order on it, so the media could not report the news.
1: Yeah, so a gag order is this facet of the Australian legal system because Cardinal Pell had actually another trial that he was supposed to uh, stand for. The judge implemented this order that prevented media from covering it so as not to influence the second trial. But
0: now the prosecutors have actually decided not to pursue that second trial, um, but they are going to have the sentencing hearing this week, I think.
1: Yeah, so we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon, and the events are moving kind of quick, and the sentencing is supposed to be, as you mentioned, Wednesday morning, Australia time, Uh, so you will definitely know what the outcome of that is by the time you listen to this. Um, but this is a big deal. And if you're confused on why you maybe have heard this news twice, the, the, the reason is because it was reported by some in December when this news first broke. But because of the gag order has been lifted, um, more media are free to talk about it, including us.
2: Correct. And Pell has maintained his innocence throughout, and he's described the accusations as violent, disgusting conduct and is expected to appeal the conviction. Um, And the Vatican has recognized this outcome and said that it is going to await the final outcome of the appeal. And Pope Francis had already, um, as a precautionary measure, uh, removed Pell from public ministry. Um,
1: Once he had gone back to Australia to stand trial. Right. What's our next story, Olga?
2: So the Vatican has announced that Pope Francis will be releasing an apostolic exhortation next month on March 25th. um, And this is following the synod on young people that happened in the fall.
0: What is an apostolic exhortation and why should we care about it, Zach?
1: So apostolic exhortations are papal writings. There are a lot of different genres of papal writing. You've got proprios. you've got encyclicals. and an apostolic letter of exhortation is fits somewhere in there, where it's you know officially uh, a letter written by the the Pope and it's church teaching, and it's often in response to um, a gathering or a meeting, like like this past synod of bishops. And so some of Pope Francis's earlier ones. Uh, so there was Gaudete et Exultate, which was an exhortation on holiness, um, and there was also it, maybe the more famous one because of some of its controversial passages was Amoris Laetitia, which came out of the synod on the family.
0: So do we know what? he's going to say in this or are we going to wait and see? Well, we have some uh,
1: hint. The idea is that a lot of the documents that were produced in the out of, coming out of the Synod were given to Pope Francis for him to consider when he was writing this final document. And so while, no, we don't really know what the final thing is going to say, he the, the Pope is free to look at that and sort of say, you guys got it wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm going to write my own thing. It's more, It's. I guess I would put my money on he's going to consider that a lot and work in a lot of the themes from that into his final document.
2: So why should young people care about this, Olga? I think young people should care because these documents are used by popes. um, It's going to be used by Pope Francis to kind of provide Catholics with guidelines related to issues, not just within the church, but outside in society as well.
1: Yeah. And I think it is also important because it adds to the body of capital C-T church teaching that some of the pope's thoughts on how the church should relate to young people. Right. And so that adds some extra emphasis and shows that, you know, we're treating young people as a priority.
0: And hopefully they'll translate it in a way that young people will find it accessible. Mm.
1: Yes. (laughs) That's what we're doing. We're doing we're taking the apostolic exhortation, putting it in the podcast feeds.
2: (laughs) What's our next story, Ashley? So according to a new poll,
0: Americans are now more likely to identify as pro-life than they were just a few months ago. Um, They are equally likely to identify as pro-life, as pro-choice, both at 47
1: percent. So according to a similar poll done by Maris just a few months ago, only 38 percent of people would consider themselves pro-life at the time.
0: Yeah. So that's a that's a significant jump um, in just in just a few weeks. Um, And it's being attributed to the news around late-term abortions.
1: This poll was sponsored by the Knights of Columbus. It comes out of Marist. And I think one of the things it's showing is that a lot of the rhetoric around abortion, the things that you hear the most often are often the most extreme positions. And I think a lot of Americans are often somewhere in between. And so that's why you see, as this poll describes, a big shift, right?
0: Right. And interestingly, the largest swing came um, from self-identified Democrats and people under 45 years old, which, you know, that is generally seen as the most pro-choice part of the population.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, I mean, the pro-life movement has for a long time really valued the voices of young people in the movement. I mm. I think they do a good job of lifting those up. I don't know that they've always invested in maybe Democrats. and Reaching
0: that's, across the aisle. Yeah. 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 And
1: so this is, I think, hopefully a a good opportunity to show that, you know, being pro-life is not a Republican priority or, or, or issue and that it is a universal message.
2: Also joining us via Skype today is Don Arujo Hawkins, a religion reporter at Global Sisters Report, which focuses on the stories of w- women religious around the world. Welcome to Jesuitical, Don. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah. No, we're super, super excited. So, you work at NCR's uh, Global Sisters Report, and NCR, for our listeners who don't know, is National Catholic Reporters. Um, how long have you been there, and how long? Why Why is it important to report on women religious?
3: I have been at Global Sisters Report for five years. We're actually celebrating our five-year anniversary in April. I think there had been this sense that you've got this group of highly, highly educated women who have completely devoted themselves to living the gospel. And for the most part, like their work was not well advertised. I mean, the people who were engaging with the sisters for sure knew what the sisters were doing but sisters even when we started do not like to talk about themselves we would really have to press them into interviews are like me who like me i'm just like finding a cure for cancer like <laughs> why do you want to talk to me um contrast that and, with
1: men in the church who often yeah. just do very little no i'm just
3: I mean, so, <laughs> uh, so there was the sense that amplifying these these stories and these ministries would be useful not only to the church, but to the larger world. And so to really invest in that and get those stories out there.
1: Did you have any like personal experience with religious women uh, growing up that sort of stuck with you that like y- you thought this is going to be a natural fit for me to do this job?
3: Not, not at all. I um, uh, was raised Baptist And when I started at National Catholic Reporter, Global Sisters Report, I was just starting to hang out seriously with the Mennonites. Um, So I now kind of consider myself Mennonite. Um, And the only experiences I'd had with sisters were while I was in a seminary. I went to a seminary in, uh, in Ohio, and there was this affordable housing complex of sorts for women, specifically women who were um leaving prostitution and I was kind of tangentially like watching these protests and at one of the big they staged a live nativity um outside of this like corporation that was trying to buy this house and this housing and close it down. And there was a sister who spoke and I was like I did not know that's what nuns did. Like I had <laughs> not a clue. Like this is what they were about. There are so many misportrayals of sisters in media which now I'm like very well versed in but you know you see like sister acting you think that's what they do, or they're always like really mean teachers. And I don't know that I really gave it a whole lot of thought, but I don't think I had any idea of the type of apostolic ministries they had that were really like-
1: What do you mean by apostolic ministries?
3: Like outward, helping people, like doing things, social justice, um, or other terms, other forms of activism instead of, um, you know, just kind of sitting in a cloister and praying which people do and that i think has its place and is you know helpful as well but i had no idea that there was anything outside of that.
0: What were what were some of the ministries that you've covered or come across that really stuck out to you among women religious? Or is
3: there a specific sister whose story has has stuck with you? You know, one, one story that i always bring up when people ask me about, you know, what what are what are ministries that sisters do. There is one sister i interviewed who is a biology professor at a university and kind of her research focus and what she sees as her mission is finding a plant-based cure for cancer. Another sister who I think is really just uh, pretty fantastic is uh, Allison McCrary. She is based in Louisiana. She's a sister for Christian community and she's a civil rights lawyer and activist, specifically focused on police accountability and criminal justice reform and she's like the wokest person, I know. Like I I follow her on social media. I'm like I don't I don't even know half of what you're talking about, but like wow, like she's she's pretty great. And she's young too. She's uh, I believe 36 and just real really really sharp, really really smart.
1: I I was wondering we we were preparing for this interview and I thought about occasionally in sort of secular news, there'll be a, a nun that goes viral for doing something just sort of like pretty ordinary. I don't know, like throwing out the first pitch at a baseball game or one of my like personal friends and heroes, Sister Jean, the chaplain of Loyola Chicago's men's basketball team sort of went viral last year. Um, why do you think it is that nuns sort of are in the public imagination in this way and they can they have this tendency to go viral?
3: I, I think it's based on a misconception of what sisters are and what they do. Um, I mean, this is really, we laugh about this all the time. Every time some sister is viral for like, there was, I think once a photo series of sisters mowing the grass and I was like, well, who do you <laughs> think mows their grass? <laughs> <laughs> what when, What, what do did, did you expect? Um, I think it's just a lack of knowledge for most people and just like, oh, isn't this so interesting? They're like doing, they're just like us. They're just like normal people. It's like, yeah, I mean, obviously they've you know, devoted, taken vows of poverty and chastity and devoted themselves to the gospel. That's, you know, kind of radical and different, but they're normal people.
2: So Don, it's Black History Month, and you reported on this collaboration um, that's happening where for the first time, the Oblate Sisters of Providence, which are predominantly Black sisters, and the Servants of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, which are mostly white sisters, are coming together for this vocations project. Um, can you talk to us about what's so significant about this collaboration?
3: Yeah, the Oblate Sisters of Providence and the Sister Servants of the Immaculate Hearts of Mary, the IHMs, because that's a mouthful, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> they have this long history that was kept under wraps for a very long time. So the Oblate Sisters of Providence, first black congregation in the United States founded in 1829. And one of their first four founding members was a half Haitian, half British woman named Teresa Maxis duchemin And she This is kind of glossing over a lot of history, but she ends up leaving the Oblate Sisters of Providence and founding the IHMs, passing as a white woman Mm in 1845. Um, It seems pretty clear that the local bishops, wherever she went founding IHM communities, knew that she was Black and that she always had like constant drama with the local bishops. And they would say these really kind of racist things about her, like referring to her as a Sly and cunning mulatto. And eventually she was exiled from the IHMs until the last few years of her life and then scrubbed from IHM history. Like novices, postulants did not learn about her when they were joining the community. They went through, leadership went through great lengths to kind of, you know, separate themselves from this history of this Black foundress. And it wasn't until 1992 when an IHM historian, Sister Margaret Gannon, Wrote a book, and she had these collections of letters that, like, proved that Teresa Maxis was a founder of the IHMs and that she was Black, and that there was this huge, like, 160 year cover up. Um, And then from there, they formed a relationship with the Oblate Sisters of Providence, who are their spiritual sisters Mm -hmm. in a sense. And so, what I thought was really interesting about this vocations event that they did was that it was just Sisters being sisters, you know, working on vocations. Because so often you, you know, when you talk about Black sisters, it's always in the context of race or racism. And I mean, they're just sisters like everybody else. And I thought it was so cool that they were working on something that, I mean, it had racial tinges to it because obviously so much of the history of the United States is steeped in racism. But they were just doing a vocations event together. And I thought that was just a really cool way for them to collaborate and move forward.
2: Done. one of the things that made me super excited to talk to you for this interview is that you've been at NCR for five years. I've been at America for a little over seven years. And sometimes being the only person of color in a predominantly white religion media space can be there's kind of this pressure. I know one of the things that people are like, do you ever get tired of writing and talking about racial justice? Do you ever get tired of covering like black and brown issues? Um and for me, sometimes I feel like there, even though it's something I'm passionate about, I'm like, why does the pressure kind of, it always feels like the pressure is falling on me to be the voice um, for that beat. Um, what do you think being a, be, being a black woman in Christian media? Oh,
3: <laughs> isn't that the question? <laughs> I know, that was a very, very, very loaded question. But, <laughs> you know, I, I, I started a Global Sisters report in May 2014 and then, Michael Brown was killed in August 2014, so just a few months later. And I think for many younger, youngish, millennial um, Black people, that that was a transformative moment, like more so than anything else, I think, in our lives. And it was at that point that I really started to think about what was my job as a journalist. And Ethel Payne, the first lady of the Black press, she once said that you know, the black press is intrinsically advocacy press. And I've really taken that to heart in the sense that writing about race and racism, or even just celebrating black people um, when it's not about race or racism is part of my job. And I don't, I've come to the realization that that is not me being unobjective. I think objectivity and journalism has been warped into something that It was never meant to be like, it doesn't mean seeing both sides of racism. It means going into a story, um, without a preconceived notion, not dismissing facts that don't fit your idea of what the story is. But once you get all of those facts, it is your job to call a spade a spade. It is your job to call racism, racism. And I find myself really to be energized by that and to feel, to see that as a mission and a calling And if, you know, someone's going to, you know, come at me like, oh, you're not objective. You're against racism. Yes, I am. (laughs) And it's a hill I'm willing to die on. So if that's a problem for you, you have some reevaluating to do. Um, So, no, I mean, sometimes it is hard. There was, I was just finished a series on um, cities that had high profile racial violence. And I had focused one on Corin Gaines, who was shot by police officers in Baltimore and she had taken before she died, obviously had taken um, some video of the encounter and she had her five-year-old son with her and I could hear him talking in the background of this video. And he sounded just like my two-year-old son. And I like had to Mm -hmm. close my computer, walk away. That was Mm -hmm. like, I just needed to take some time. That was really hard. But uh, generally like I, I feel energized. Um, I feel like this is a mantle that I want to take on and carry on for as long as I am writing, which hopefully is a very, very long time.
0: Yeah, we hope so too. Thank you so much for the work you do and for talking to us. Oh,
1: thank you. Yeah, we do have one final question for you. And we ask all our guests this. If you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or non-fictional, who would it be and why?
3: Oh, 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 this is easy. This would be Ida B. Wells Barnett. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) All right, tell tell us who Ida B. Wells is.
3: Ida B. Wells is a black journalist who really changed the idea of what lynching was in the United States. Uh, she worked in the early 20th century, I would say. Uh, she died in 1935. But the reason why I would pick her over, like, say, James Baldwin, who I also love and adore, is that she was so uncelebrated at the end of her life. She you know, was erased from a lot of the work that she did. She was erased from some of the organizations that she had helped found. And I just have a soft spot in my heart for Black women who do not get the due that they are owed. So make her a saint, give her a feast day,
2: all the celebrations.
1: All right. <laughs> Amen.
2: <laughs> um, and Dawn, thank you so much again. Where can people find um, the work that you're doing or where can they follow you on social
3: media? Ooh, um, I'm on Twitter at Dawn underscore Cherie. I have a fancy new website, donnaroojohawkins.com not a whole lot going on there, but all of my favorite stories are there. So if you want to read all of my favorite stories that I've ever written, there they are. And also all of my, I have a list of all of my favorite journalists. So if you want cool women to follow, awesome. that's where they're at.
2: Awesome. Thank you, Don. Thank
1: you so much.
3: Thank you.
2: All right, now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have, Olga? So if you are in the San Jose area next month on March 13th, there will be a Solidarity on Tap at the Golden State Brewery. And the speaker will be Sister Barbara Hagel. Um, She is the Care for Creation Coordinator um, of the Dominican Sisters of Mission of San Jose. And the theme will be the essential care of creation. And if you're in Los Angeles on March 26th, there
0: will be a Solidarity on Tap event at the Boomtown Brewery. Uh, The speaker will be... Joseph Tomas McKellar, the co-director of PIC California, on the theme Becoming and Belonging, Evolving Faith-Based Community Organizing in Our Racially Polarized Times. Um, And you can find out about both of these events uh, on Facebook and through the Ignatian Solidarity Network uh, website.
1: Which is IgnatianSolidarity.net.
0: All right, now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach?
1: I have a consolation that started out as a desolation, as they often do. I was visiting with my grandma this weekend in Ohio, and uh, she is undergoing treatment for ovarian cancer right now. And she had kind of mentioned to me sort of jokingly, but in a, I don't know, in a serious way that, you know, well, saying some prayers, but not sure God's listening because not sure, you know, not sure any of them are working. Um, And so I, you know, said back, I'm going to, all right, well, that means I need to up my prayers. For you too. Um, but I've lately been struggling a lot with prayer, but I think just a lot with what's been going on in the news and uh, with um, other things going on in my life. So I was feeling guilty about not being able to up my prayer game for grandma. And So I reached out to a friend who's traveling in the Holy Land right now and asked if they would be able to pray for my grandma. And uh, they wrote back to me just today and mentioned that they were at the Sea of Galilee and where Jesus calmed the storms. And they asked if Jesus would calm the storms in my grandma's life and in my life. And the consolation in that was both that, you know, in a time of struggle being able to reach out and recognize that like this is where God is working in the way that we lift each other up in our times of struggle. Um, Being able to have that shown to me by this person was my consolation this week.
0: That's really great. I've also sent some prayer requests to the Holy Holy Land. Land. Yeah, It's a a good feeling to know that they're praying for us over there.
1: Yep. What
0: do you have, Olga?
2: So I've got a desolation this week. I found myself um, over the weekend doing what— I think all of uh, you guys can also relate to. I found I was comparing myself to a lot of professional writers that I admire and follow on social media. And it went very quickly went from me admiring the really great work that they're doing to comparing myself to them and then falling down this really ugly rabbit hole of being envious and then just kind of hating and doubting myself. Um, And I still haven't fully pulled myself out of that place. But the desolation was in. Not I was just completely removed from the people around me and from, you know, seeing where God was around me. You know, I was traveling with my fiance and friends and there were moments where I couldn't be fully present because I was in this really dark, awful place. Um, And it's just really it's it's really a desolation to not be able to see God in your life because you can't even see him in yourself. Um, So that was my desolation for the weekend.
1: Mm -hmm. That is hard. And you're right. Yeah, we Can't we I
2: all write. know the compare and despair
1: feeling. It's the and it,
2: it can be
0: bad and hard to get out of, but you should know that you're an amazing writer and there are probably a lot of people comparing themselves to you. Thank <laughs> Hopefully you, <Ashley>. not
2: despairing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> please, please don't despair, but thank you, Ashley. Uh, what do you have this week?
0: Uh, I have a consolation that came uh, through this week's gospel reading. Um, so it's the gospel that uh, in which uh, Jesus tells us to love our enemies. Um, and I first started thinking about it last week, and I was feeling kind of good about myself. I was like, you know what? I don't really have any enemies. Like I don't get angry very easily. I don't really hate anyone very deeply. Um, but then I quickly was like, you know, the gospel is supposed to not <laughs> just affirm me. So I probably need to <laughs> dig into that a little bit. Um, and then our our pastor on Sunday gave like a really good homily that just helped me come to this realization that like for Jesus, when he, his enemies are people who hate him because he's standing with the poor and the marginalized. And that if I don't feel like I have enemies, then maybe it's because I'm not living the gospel in a radical enough way. Um, so so like that didn't feel great to come to that realization, but the consolation was was feeling like I was I was open to God's word through the readings and willing to be challenged by them. Um so so yeah, so that was consoling.
1: Yeah, I find these Luke readings the past couple weeks really yeah. like uh arresting, like Yeah. If you're hungry, woe to you. And also, oh, even normal people love the people that are good to them. Yeah. So yep. Also can relate.
0: Yeah. Bet a good good challenge before we enter the Lenten season. Well
1: hopefully we don't become enemies.
0: (laughs) That would just be awkward.
1: That would not is not God's will, I don't think. (laughs) No, no.
0: All right. Jesuitical is brought to you by America Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Adverb provided by Mama McKinless, a.k.a. my mom, Kathy McKinless. <laughs> Jesuit <laughs> information provided by Eric Sudrup, SJ. Engineering by Kieran Freeman. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And leave us a review. And you can send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at americamedia.org. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We will see you next week.